Chapter Eight of The White Feather. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The White Feather by P. G. Wodehouse. Chapter Eight: A Naval Battle and Its Consequences. What a go is life! Let us examine the case of Jackson of Dexter's, O'Hara who had left Dexter's at the end of the summer term, had once complained to Clowes of the manner in which his housemaster treated him, and Clowes had remarked in his melancholy way that it was nothing less than a breach of the law that Dexter should persist in leaving a fellow a dog's life without a dog license for him. That was precisely how Jackson felt on the subject. Things became definitely unbearable on the day after Sheen's interview with Mr. Joe Bevan. "'Twas morn, to begin at the beginning, and Jackson sprang from his little cot to embark on the labours of the day. Unfortunately, he sprang ten minutes too late, and came down to breakfast about the time of the second slice of bread and marmalade. Result, a hundred lines. Proceeding to school, he had again fallen foul of his housemaster, in whose form he was, after a matter of unprepared livy. As a matter of fact, Jackson had prepared the livy, or rather, he had not absolutely prepared it, but he had meant to. But it was Mr. Templar's preparation, and Mr. Templar was short-sighted. Anyone will understand, therefore, that it would have been simply chucking away the gifts of Providence if he had not gone on with the novel which he had been reading up till the last moment before prep-time, and had brought along with him accidentally, as it were. It was a book called A Spoiler of Men, by Richard Marsh, and there was a repulsive crime on nearly every page. It was hot stuff, much better than Livy. Lunch score, two hundred lines. During lunch he had the misfortune to upset a glass of water. Pure accident, of course, but there it was, don't you know, all over the table. Mr. Dexter had called him A. Clumsy, B a pig, and had given him, one, advice, you had better be careful, Jackson, two, a present, two hundred lines, Jackson. On the match being resumed at two o'clock, with four hundred lines on the score-sheet, he had played a fine free game during afternoon school, and Mr. Dexter, who objected to fine free games, or indeed any games, during school hours, had increased the total to six hundred, when stumps were drawn for the day. So, on a bright, sunny, Saturday afternoon, when he should have been out in the field cheering the house-team on to victory against the schoolhouse, Jackson sat in the junior day-room at Dexter's, copying out portions of Virgil, Aeneid too. To him, later on in the afternoon, when he had finished half his task, entered Painter, with the news that Dexter's had taken thirty points off the schoolhouse just after half-time. "'Mop them up!' said the terse and epigrammatic painter. "'Mead rings around them. Haven't you finished yet? Well, chuck it and come out.' "'What's on?' asked Jackson. "'We're going to have a boat-race.' "'Pile it on.' "'We are, really.' "'Fact!' Some of these schoolhouse kids are awfully sick about the match, and challenged us. That chap Tomlin thinks he can row. <laughs> he can't row for nuts, said Jackson, 
He doesn't know which end of the oar to shove into the water. I've seen cats that could row better than Tomlin. That's what I told him. At least, I said he couldn't row for Toffee, so he said, All right, I bet I can lick you. And I said I betted he couldn't. He said, All right, then, let's try. And then the other chaps wanted to join in, so we made an interhouse thing of it. And I want you to come and stroke us. Jackson hesitated. Mr. Dexter, setting the lines on Friday, had certainly said they were to be shown up tomorrow evening. He had said it very loud and clear. Still, in a case like this... After all, by helping to beat the schoolhouse on the river, he would be giving Dexter's a leg up. And what more could the man want? "'Right-ho!' said Jackson. Down at the school boathouse, the enemy were already afloat when Painter and Jackson arrived. "'Buck up!' cried the schoolhouse crew. Dexter's embarked five strong. There was room for two on each seat. Jackson shared the post of stroke with Painter. Crowell steered. "'Ready?' asked Tomlin from the other boat. "'Half a sec,' said Jackson. "'What's the course?' "'Oh, don't you know that yet? Up to the town, round the island just below the bridge, the island with a croquet on it, you know, and back here again. Ready?' "'In a jiffy. Look here, Crowell, remember about steering. You pull the right line if you want to go to the right, and the other if you want to go to the left.' "'All right,' said the injured Crowell. "'As if I didn't know that. I thought I'd mention it. It's your fault. Nobody could tell by looking at you that you knew anything except how to eat. Ready, you chaps?' "'When I say three, said Tomlin. It was a subject of heated discussion between the crews for weeks afterward, whether Dexter's boat did or did not go off at the word two. Opinions were divided on the topic, but it was certain that Jackson and his men led from the start. Pulling a good splashing stroke which had drenched Crowell to the skin in the first thirty yards, Dexter's boat crept slowly ahead. By the time the island was reached, it led by a length. Encouraged by success, the leaders redoubled their already energetic efforts. Crowell sat in a shower-bath. He was even moved to speech about it. "'When you've finished,' said Crowell. Jackson, intent upon repartee, caught a crab, and the schoolhouse drew level again. The two boats passed the island abreast. Just here occurred one of those unfortunate incidents. Both crews had quickened their stroke until the boats had practically been converted into submarines, and the rival coxswains were observing bitterly to space that this was jolly well the last time they ever let themselves in for this sort of thing, when round the island there hove in sight a flotilla of boats, directly in the path of the racers. There were three of them, and not even the spray which played over them like a fountain could prevent Crowell from seeing that they were manned by Judies. Even on the river these outcasts wore their mortarboards. "'Look out!' shrieked Crowell, pulling hard on his right line. "'Stop rowing, you chaps! We shall be into them!' At the same moment the schoolhouse oarsmen ceased pulling. The two boats came to a halt a few yards from the enemy. "'What's up?' panted Jackson, crimson from his exertions. "'Hullo! It's the Judies!' Tomlin was parleying with a foe. "'Why the dickens can't you keep out of the way? Spoiling our race! Wait till we get ashore!' 
but the Judies, it seemed, were not prepared to wait even for that short space of time. A miscreant, larger than the common run of Judy, made a brief but popular address to his men. "'Splash them!' he said. Instantly, amid shrieks of approval, oars began to strike the water, and the water began to fly over the Riken boats, which were now surrounded. The latter were not slow to join battle with the same weapons. Homeric laughter came from the bridge above. The town bridge was a sort of loafer's club, to which the entrance fee was a screw of tobacco, and the subscription, an occasional remark upon the weather. Here gathered together, day by day, that section of the populace which resented it when they asked for employment and only got work instead. From morn till eve they lounged against the balustrades, surveying nature, and hoping it would be kind enough to give them some excitement that day. An occasional dog-fight founded them an eager audience. No runaway horse ever bored them. A broken-down motor-car was meat and drink to them. They had an appetite for every spectacle. When, therefore, the water began to fly from boat to boat, Kind-hearted men fetched their friends from neighbouring public-houses, and craned with them over the parapet, observing the sport, and commenting thereon. It was these comments that attracted Mr. Dexter's attention. When, cycling across the bridge, he found the south side of it entirely congested, and heard raucous voices urging certain unseen little uns now to go it, and anon to vote for Petter, his curiosity was aroused. He dismounted and pushed his way through the crowd, until he got a clear view of what was happening below. He was just in time to see the most stirring incident of the fight. The biggest of the Judy boats had been propelled by the current nearer and nearer to the Dexter Argo. No sooner was it within distance than Jackson, dropping his oar, grasped the side and pulled it towards him. The two boats crashed together and rocked violently as the crews rose from their seats, and grappled with one another. A hurricane of laughter and applause went up from the crowd upon the bridge. The next moment both boats were bottom upwards, and drifting sluggishly down towards the island, while the crews swam like rats for the other boats. Every Rykinian had to learn to swim before he was allowed on the river, so that the peril of Jackson and his crew was not extreme, and it was soon speedily evident that swimming was also part of the Judy curriculum, for the shipwrecked ones were soon climbing drippingly on board the surviving ships, where they sat and made puddles, and shrieked defiance at their antagonists. This was accepted by both sides as the end of the fight, and the combatants parted without further hostilities, each fleet believing that the victory was with them. And Mr. Dexter, mounting his bicycle again, rode home to tell the headmaster. That evening, after preparation, the headmaster held a reception. Among distinguished visitors were Jackson, Painter, Tomlin, Crowell, and six others. On the Monday morning the headmaster issued a manifesto to the school after prayers. He had, he said, for some time entertained the idea of placing the town out of bounds. He would do so now. No boy, unless he was a prefect, would be allowed until further notice to cross the town bridge. As regarded the river, for the future boating Rykinians must confine their attentions to the lower river. Nobody must take a boat upstream. The school boatmen would have strict orders to see that this rule was rigidly enforced. Any breach of these bounds would, 
he concluded, be punished with the utmost severity. The headmaster of Riken was not a hasty man. He thought before he put his foot down, but when he did, he put it down heavily. Sheen heard the ultimatum with dismay. He was a law-abiding person, and here he was, faced with a dilemma that made it necessary for him to choose between breaking school rules of the most important kind, or pulling down all the castles he had built in the air before the mortar had had time to harden between their stones. He wished he could talk it over with somebody, but he had nobody with whom he could talk over anything. He must think it out for himself. He spent the rest of the day thinking it out, and by nightfall he had come to his decision. Even at the expense of breaking bounds and the risk of being caught at it, he must keep his appointment with Joe Bevan. It would mean going to the town landing stage for a boat, thereby breaking bounds twice over. But it would have to be done. End of chapter 8